morning, everyone. For some scripture this morning, we'll be looking in the book of Isaiah at two different passages. <clears throat> First one's found in Isaiah chapter 31, just the first three verses. Then we'll turn to the third chapter <clears throat> of Isaiah. <clears throat> in 31, 1 through 3, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall, and he who is helped will fall down. They all will perish together. Then in 3, <clears throat> Isaiah 3, 10. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. For the reward of his hands shall be given him. We'll end just with those scriptures. <clears throat> I've been in the pastorate long enough to remember fairly well preaching 4th of July sermons. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not unspiritual. Uh, God established the state. I believe he establishes individual nations. He says so. He said he sets up one, puts down another. He raises up one nation and destroys another. And as Nebuchadnezzar, king of the then greatest kingdom, wielded immense power. He said, now I know, after God put him down low, he said, now I know that the Most High God rules in the affairs of men. Now, I don't know about you, but as we think today of our country, our world, we can't ever be smart-alecky with God. We have to watch what kinds of questions we ask Him. We can wonder, if you understand the difference I'm trying to draw here, we can wonder, but we better not question. Meaning, skeptically question. Why are you doing that? Where are you at? Why have you let this go? Why is that 
allowed. That we have to refrain from. But in a day like today, I, I've been thinking, what, what do I say to myself? What do I say to you as we commemorate and rightly celebrate the founding of our nation, the birth of our nation, which, to quote Benjamin Franklin, he said, if a sparrow does not fall to the ground without God, how could a nation rise up without God? God raised us up. I don't have any question about that. The history of America, those in many European countries and in England, not just England, fled here for religious freedom. The freedom to follow their conscience as God seemed to dictate to them. They didn't all agree on doctrine, but that was kind of the point. Then there was no concept of a separation between state and church. It's interesting to read history into the 1600s and 1700s even. National parliaments, legislatures, whatever, were determining doctrines. Church quarrels over beliefs, over the meaning of communion, over the meaning of free will versus predestination. They were often submitted not to denominational meetings, but to Parliament to decide because there was no separation at all between the state and religion. It was virtually one and the same. To this day, many places, including those in Europe, England, the taxes pay for the clergy. The taxes pay for the upkeep of the churches. They, we think the whole world is like America. It isn't. And it hasn't been. We have freedom to worship here today. Now, we look at storm clouds. We look at wickedness. We look at depravity. We look at chaos. We look at iniquity abounding. We look at the familiar landmarks being removed, the moral landmarks in our society. We shake our heads. We don't know what to do. We think, where's God gone? What's going to happen? We get fired up about elections. What in the world? What do I preach on 4th of July Sunday? <clears throat> Maybe two things just on my mind. One, whether we, and, and you'll think somebody else is preaching today, okay? But I still, I believe today, this morning, Elisha's words to the young man that stood with him as they were surrounded by the Assyrians. 
Massive army. Hopeless. The young man with him was scared to death, but not Elisha. He prayed and he said, Lord, open this young man's eyes that he might see. God did. And it says the mountains all around the army that was surrounding them were filled with horses and chariots of fire. And then Elisha said, there are more for us than there are for them. I believe that even in our population, we only hear of the loud-mouthed, depraved fools. That's all we hear from. We don't hear, do you realize this? Now, this is a little old, but it's not that old. Statistic. There are more people in the United States that gather together every Sunday all across the country. There are more people than every athletic contest in the same weekend. I'm talking NFL. I'm talking everything. High school, college, everything. There are more people in church. I know all the churches that maybe aren't too hot. But there are more people that are in church than in all the athletic contests. There's still a huge number, maybe silent, maybe just now being stirred up with the tsunami of evil that seems to be coming at us. There's still, there's still a lot of people that love God. And are grieved at what we see. Troubled. Deeply. So we're not, even if we're a minority, we're not that big of a minority. And of course, second, the second foundational cornerstone. There's still a God. Now God's not resigned, that I know of. He's not considering retirement. He's going nowhere. And he's been here quite a while. He's seen a lot of people come and go. He's seen a lot of boasters and loudmouths and windbags pontificate and then rot in the grave. He's seen a lot of it. And he's still here. The sun still comes up. The earth still revolves. God hasn't gone anywhere. So what do we do? How do we react? This is a question that in a lot of countries there's no point in asking it to a, in a sense because they don't have the freedom that we have to even worship or to speak out. We do. That gives us not only an opportunity, but it gives us a responsibility. We're in a country where we have the capacity, at least, to influence things, speak on things, so forth. So what do we do as we sit here coming up on a couple days from now, the birth date of our country, which was born in 
religious revival and was established upon Christian principles by Christians. Not all of them were die-hard, dyed-in-the-wool Christians, but at least they were deeply influenced by and guided by Christian scriptural principles. It's the bedrock of our society. It is grievous as we see our foundations undermined. And we worry. I just, I, I, I don't know how many, maybe I'd have to go back two days for the last time I said, I worry about my grandkids. What are they going to grow up in? What are they going to see? What are they going to face? I'd probably say that to somebody, you know, in an effort to encourage them. <clears throat> Within every 48 hours. <clears throat> what do we do then? And we're, we look at ourselves, we're small. What, what, what can I do? I mean, I, I listen, I'm not the only one here. I have made some of the most ringing, best, put-down speeches to the stupid television and the people that come on it, who a lot of times... I will say to my wife, I can't stand that guy. I'm not even going to watch him. Turn it off. Can't take it. I think I'm not the only one. What do we do? I can't fix it by myself. What do we do? Well, I think there are three little things, three maybe small <laughs> thoughts from these scriptures that we read. The first one, a little background here. Isaiah is prophesying about a looming menace. We think today who are our greatest enemies. We talk about Russia. We talk about China seeking to remove us as the superpower. And so we focus on what is the looming threat Nothing's changed. This is about 700 B.C. There was coming in Isaiah's prophecy a looming threat for the, from the Assyrians. The Assyrians headquartered their capital, Nineveh. And everyone was worried about the Assyrians because they were gobbling up country after country. And they were the power then. They were the superpower. Everyone scared to death of the Assyrians. No one knew it, but God had already slated that the Assyrians, the terror of the whole Middle East, the whole Fertile Crescent, it, they were shaking, praying, to their gods, doing everything they could, worried about the Assyrians. God already knew the date that he was going to flatten them. It was already on his calendar by a group then not much on the map, the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians ended up scaring people worse than the Assyrians. But God had on his calendar the date when he'd flattened the Babylonians. 
He did it with the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians scared everybody to death. But God had on his calendar, I'm going to bring Alexander the Great and I'm going to flatten the Medes and the Persians. So God wasn't, he didn't lose his sleep. Even though he doesn't sleep. The Assyrians then were the worry. And Israel was looking to go to Egypt to get help from the Egyptians militarily. Rather than, as we read in chapter 31, they didn't look to God. So the first thing we have to do is refrain. Refrain from what? Looking to other places for help. Now, primarily, we look to a couple things. Our own power. Second, we look as a population, often, we look to the government. We look to elections. Boy, if we can get rid of these people. But the, here's the problem. You know, there are even some conservatives that are wicked. You know that? Not everybody that happens to have a certain political view is morally and spiritually walking with God. Not at all. It's a myth. It is a myth that our help comes from politicians. Now, does God have anything to do with setting up rulers? Of course he does. In some ways he allows, in some way he acts. <laughs> He's acting in both cases. But he sometimes lets. Much of what we say God does is merely allowing. He lets wickedness take its course. He uses it and knows how to use it as, a, as an affliction back on us who are committing it. God has always let wickedness afflict the wicked. Evil shall slay the wicked, Proverbs says. And God lets our iniquities and our sins correct us. Often the best thing he can do, and he's beyond wise, is stand back and say, all right, if that's what you want, go ahead. See how, see how that works out for you. He did that with Israel over and over and over. He also raised up nations that he used as a punishment against Israel, and those who had walked away from light. That's a long history with God. I think we're facing some of that. It's not new. But what we have to do, as threats loom, they seem very real, they seem very capable of doing us in, 
we have to refrain from fearing those threats to the point that we turn to the flesh to save us. I read, if you recall, in 31, now it says the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. We have to refrain then from setting our hopes and looking for fleshly human means to save us. Now why? Primarily because our maladies, our problems, our mess that we're in is not of human making. Yes, humans are part of it. This is spiritual, it is satanic, it is sin, it is righteousness versus evil, and good we're, uh, against sin. That's what this is. This is an ancient, ancient war that has been raging since. If you look in the scriptures... And there was war in heaven. Satan and his angels fought against Michael, the archangel, and the angels of God. And Satan was cast out of heaven. Jesus said, I saw him fall from heaven like lightning. That began before the creation. An ancient war. That's what we're still involved in today. This is spiritual. So our armament, our warfare, our war equipment, everything has to be spiritual. Me yelling at the television and the person that's there, I mean, it might let off a little steam, and I might feel a little bit better, but we all know it doesn't do any good at all. I can't do anything. I can't do one thing. But God can. Now, God is still in utter control. I know that there are circumstances and events that make us think, my God, Goodness, if God's in control, what in the world's he doing? He knows exactly what he's doing, what he'll permit, what he won't permit. He knows how to balance. And I've prayed about it. I thought about it. I sat in the recliner with my Bible and thought, Lord, what in the world? And essentially, you can't go very far on that. Because essentially you're saying, well, you don't know what you're doing. I do. I've been here how many? 50 years, 70 years. I know. And God who's been here from everlasting to everlasting, he's fouled up. He needs my help. I've got some advice for you, Lord. It's pathetic. But I thought, Lord, 
only you know how to balance the havoc that the wicked perpetrate while you have mercy and leave them alive. Because if, you know, if I've, who hasn't thought, maybe I'm the only one here, who hasn't thought, if I had the power, there would be crispy critters everywhere. You understand? That would be it. Sometimes it's nice to go read the Old Testament. And the Lord smote so-and-so and he died. And I think, boy, those are my, those are good verses. <laughs> but God knows and he's told us, basically. He's already told us. I wait. I let the wicked run sometimes. Seemingly free, but they're not. But I let them go. Because I don't want anybody to perish. I don't want anybody to perish. I want everyone to come to repentance. So I wait. Don't count, and he already told us, don't count my delaying as failure to keep my promise. Or that I'm confused and I don't know what to do. So I know exactly what I'm doing. My number one purpose is being served here. I want to save as many as I can. And we have to remember this. God sees the indescribable, horrific scene of hell. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men God sees that. He knows how bad that is. He's seeking to save and he will put up with and be patient in order to save one from that. And the revenge, the avenging that we might think we wish we could do. What can I do to somebody vote them out of office, I guess, or whatever. But what can I really do? Nothing. And I don't mean this to sound wrong. God is a vengeful God. He said that. Don't you do it. He said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's a promise. You don't have to let it go. But what can I do compared to what God is capable of doing? Banishing a soul from Him and His presence for all eternity. If I think, if I think I need to take vengeance, I can't add up to that. Leave alone. Refrain then from advising God Refrain from looking at flesh to help us. Our hope is in God. And he's still running things. And he isn't going anywhere. And there's no challenge to him. From everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. Second thing. 3.10 says, Say 
to the righteous, it'll be well with you. It will be well with you. Now God defines well. There are righteous who were burned at the stake. But it's well with them. They're in heaven. They're safe forever. Their names are hallowed still here on earth. It's well with us. He said, you tell the righteous, it's well with them. It'll be well with you. So what's the second thing? Refrain, remain. Make sure we remain righteous. Make sure we remain in God's camp. Walk with God first. Keep our own souls. Do not let the arrows of the enemy get past the shield of faith. If we do, they can take a toll on us and ultimately they can extinguish our faith. I've got to remain righteous. Then to the righteous, he said, it'll be well. He didn't say it'll be well to everybody or the well to those who used to be righteous but wandered away from God or the nominal Christian. He said, it'll be well with you that are righteous. So remain, stay righteous. Walk with God. Fight the good fight of faith. Do not despair. Somebody, can't remember who, here in church, maybe bought the other pastors too, but um, some coffee cups. And they've got scripture on them. And I'll often, you know, use those. In fact, most of the time. And sometimes, I know this sounds weird, but sometimes you're so heavy-hearted, so despondent about how things are going, and there's just trouble everywhere, that actually to see on the side of a coffee cup, be strong, words to Joshua, do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. You always think, you almost feel like, I wish you didn't say that. <laughs> I enjoy feeling this bad. <laughs> it's reality. But it isn't. It's really not. God's still in control. The very man the very man that Isaiah wrote about and the country that he wrote about, the great power, the Assyrians, were headed up by a king by the name of Sennacherib. And Sennacherib was a windbag. And Sennacherib told Hezekiah, king of Judah, don't trust your God. He's not going to deliver you and your capital city of Jerusalem anymore? How about the, all the other gods of all these nations I've captured? Did they help their people? They prayed to those gods? And then he made a really stupid, fatal mistake. And he said, so how can you think that your God can deliver you from me? 
You know, I don't know what God's attitude was toward him up to that point. But at that moment, he said, well, can't let him get away with that. The blowhard stuff, maybe I could have. That, he crossed the line. Same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. Told the three Hebrew children, what God can deliver you out of my hand? Uh, God said, well, I'm going to have to make him eat that. That king, Sennacherib, that Isaiah is talking about in these scriptures we read today, was roundly defeated, badly defeated, routed outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And what happened? Great army marched in to help Israel, slaughtered them? No. They just went to bed in their tents while Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed. They prayed. I mean, I want bunker buster bombs, you know? Let's drop some of those on them. They prayed. When they woke up the next morning, there were 185,000 less soldiers because they were all dead. Now, I don't know what God did. It just said he sent an angel. And when, <laughs> when the sun came up, he, his army would, had shrunk by 185,000. He packed up, went home, and went into the house of his own God, maybe to try to figure out what happened. And his own two sons, while he was worshiping whatever God it was, assassinated him. That was the person and the nation that the Israelites were scared to death. And Isaiah said, don't look to the Egyptians for help. Look to the Lord. Who would have thought? Well, we're not going to get help from our own military. We're not, I'll tell you what. Let's wait around and see if God kills all of them in the night. <laughs> Who thinks of that? God did. He said, yeah, I, I, I got this. Remain righteous, God will take care of us. Third, last, retain. Retain what? Simple, childlike faith in God. He cannot lie. He cannot let one of his words fall to the ground. He promised. He said, you call on me, I'll answer you. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about those who fear him to deliver them. God knows. He's able. I stood because of your generosity and kindness three years ago when you sent us to Europe, it, it was a two-way ticket. <laughs> we were in the British Museum. And there are, there was, a, I think it's a hundred and some feet long, eight foot high, stone 
carvings that the British Army had carefully cut from the walls in Nineveh of Sennacherib. That same king that Isaiah is writing about. And you look at all that, and it's fake because it shows him victorious. It even shows him victorious over the Hebrews, and it's a lie. They Somehow he forgot. You think politics has just recently gotten deceitful? Oh, this thing shows him, you know, in a chariot. Blah, blah. There's not a word. Stunning development. There's not one word about losing 185,000 soldiers against the Hebrews. Not one word. No carving about him getting a shiv in the back from his two kids. None of that. What we're facing today and the lies and the deceit and so forth, God has seen this for a long time. He's still triumphed over it. And we get to see things like him opening up the truth and showing us what really happened. So, retain our trust in God. It's not futile. It's not weak. It's not a weak thing to do. The right thing is to be absolutely dependent on God. As more than once in Scripture, we read these words. God will say, for instance, Ezekiel showed Ezekiel the vast valley filled with dry bones. And it says the bones were, there were very many and they were very dry. Been there a long time. And God asked Elijah, or Elisha, not Elisha, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel's answer is the answer we have to say. He said, O Lord, thou knowest. I don't know. Nothing's impossible with you, but I don't know. But I trust you. Oh, Lord, you know. There's really where we need to stay. What's the future of our country? What are we going to do? How are things, or are they going to turn around? If they do turn around, how are they going to turn around? What can we possibly do? The best place we can be for things too high for us is to say, Oh, Lord, thou knowest. God isn't chewing his fingernails. He's not worried. He's not scrambling. He's not stumped. He knows exactly what he's doing, how he's going to do it, when he's going to do it. James said in the book of Acts, known from before the foundation of the world, are all of God's works. He knows. He wants us. David used this term, and then I'll quit. David said, I behaved myself like a weaned child on his mother's lap. That's a good description. A weaned child can't do anything. 
They don't know up from down. <laughs> they can't. They can't do anything. That's where we need to be. Oh, Lord, you know. But I trust you to keep your word and take care of us as we trust in you. I don't know how long God will keep, keep our country, but I can tell you this. In spite of absolutely everything we look at and everything we try to prognosticate, we're here as long as God wants us. Nothing, nothing can change what God plans to do and His timing. Nothing. We're in God's hands. We're safe. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for the words and the truth that we find in our scripture. May we as a people today, Lord, find peace knowing that we serve a God that keeps his promises. As we look over our shoulder this morning in your word and we see all the things, Lord, that have taken place that seem to be the end of all things. And as our pastor taught us this morning, you had a plan and you promised to fulfill it and you did. May we as a people, Lord, walk forward knowing that you've not changed. Even in the midst of us not understanding what's going on before us, we know we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory because of the cross and the empty tomb. So help us to remember that. Help us to be like David long ago, Lord, when he encouraged himself in the Lord when we walk from this place and we watch the news and we walk into a dark world with all the things that seem to be coming at the Christian faith and our walk and our life and your word, may we remember what King David did when it says he encouraged himself in the Lord. When we've lost all hope, help us to look up, keep our eyes fixed on the author and the finisher of our faith and remember that's where our hope lies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys, you are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.